Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Hope everyone is thriving as April comes to a close. We have uh, two quick housekeeping points um, today. Uh, Number one, I guess it'd be three. Sorry, there are going to be three quick points. Number one, we're going to have an award show. That's exactly right. We're going to have... Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of s- probably six to eight awards that we're going to give out, um, voted on by you all, friends of the pod and listeners, tons, tons more to come of that. Um, one hint I will say is that the award is something that you can not only put on your shelf, but you would be able to wear as a belt and we will, we will put a pin in that. So the awards will be sometime in June, July, way, way more to come, but get excited. I think this can be an absolute blast. Number two, you may have seen if you follow us on, follow the, the pod on social media. And if you don't, why aren't you please do at pharmacy to dose, T O to dose, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you may have seen some of these awesome, uh, infographics or graphics in general with some of the videos and things that have come out. Um, at the beginning of May, we're gonna I'm gonna announce officially who's involved. You, there's gonna be some of it that trickles out before then, um, but as the as the the pods expanding, we're trying to do better things to help you all um, increase the um, ease of which we can get all critical care, emergency medicine, pharmacotherapy. Um, as we're expanding, need a little help. So there's gonna be we have four official partners um, of the podcast. Uh, they're going to be working with me at least through the next year or so. Um, we're going to have an episode where we talk, we're going to have like, all of them will probably do a pearl and then we'll talk a little bit about, uh, how they're going to be involved in things. So there'll be a lot to come there. Um, but get excited. It is going to be some 
names that you are going to be familiar to listeners of the pod. Um, there's going to be some names that are familiar to the pharmacy world, maybe not to the podcast. Um, and then maybe some names that, that are, are new. And I'm, I'm very excited to introduce you and, and let you see how awesome uh, all they all are and what they bring. So um, more to come there, um, but just a little, little quick heads up there. And finally, for the literature review series, starting in April... Uh, we, I am going to have you, the listeners vote on articles that we cover in the front of the fridge, the pharmacy focus section. Um, I want to highlight things that you, the listeners want to discuss and talk about. So it's going to be more interactive. Um, that being said, right. If you know, if your paper got published ahead of print in April, or, you know, Hey, you got a table of contents and you know, your, your paper got published, send it my way. Uh, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com tag me on social media slide into dms whatever you need to do um so i want to highlight some of those things so we're going to try to make it more interactive um and make sure that the studies that we're talking about are ones a that the listeners are are taking part in doing right completing but be the ones that you are are interested in so big three things to talk about little housekeeping things but today's episode is a great one the fantastic Salia Farouk joins me to discuss the use of tenecteplase in acute ischemic stroke, right? If you've been to any conferences, read any um, medical journals recently, you're bound to find an article talking about it, um, about the thrombolytic and our transition and things. So we compare guidelines, including the just released 2023 European recommendations. We discuss the evidence, advice if you're actually going to consider going from alt-to-place to tenecteplase, studies on the horizon, and much, much more. So time is crucial in the management of acute ischemic stroke, so I'm going to stop wasting time, and let's get it. I'm so lucky to be joined by Salia Farouk to discuss all things related to tenecteplase in acute ischemic stroke. Now, quick reminder, Salia is a neurocritical care clinical pharmacy specialist at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Salia underscore Farouk. You heard her on the 2023 SECM PharmD Speakers Part 2 episode discussing updates in acute ischemic stroke management from the 2023 SECM Congress. Now she gets to go even more in depth, share so many more things. This is awesome. Salia, welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you doing? Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. I'm great. Glad to be here. Glad to be back. So... I love small talk more than anybody, but there's so much we need to talk about. I feel like we have to get right into things. And the first thing is kind of the rhetorical question is why are we talking about tenecteplase in acute ischemic stroke? I mean, in the words of, of Mugatu from the amazing Zoolander, tenecteplase is just so hot right now. I mean, in 2023 alone, I did a quick pub bed search today. We're recording this on, on Wednesday, April 19th, and there are 11 articles excluding clinical trials and protocols discussing this topic. And then I love the research creativity. Listen to the different reviews that are going on. We have a systematic review and meta-analysis with the RCTs. We have the systematic review and meta-analysis with our non-randomized trials. We have a pairwise and network meta-analysis. We have an off-label use review. 
We have a narrative review. Ooh, by far my favorite, an illustrated review. So just so good. So Salia, thanks for coming on. I think there's a lot to talk about. Clearly, this is a hot topic. You're talking about it in national conferences. So I think we get started with the first question of when did we really start looking at thrombolysis in general for acute ischemic stroke? Yeah, I think we're, you know, going back and looking at really, really old data here for Alteplase. Um, you know, I am sure that everyone knows about NINS 1 and NINS 2. We're talking about his studies in 1995. Um, you know, the NINS 1 trial initially didn't show um, positive outcomes, but there's a reason for that. They look at their outcomes after 24 hours, and we know now that that's not realistic, right? People with ischemic stroke, they probably get worse initially before they get better. And it was NINS 2 that they put into perspective because they look at outcomes, functional outcomes after 90 days or three months, and they actually showed solid improvement. And I think that's what got out to place, you know, on the market. And that's how we got a lot of excitement about that. And then ECAS showed that, hey, you can extend the time from three hours to four and a half hours. Now, NINS was probably a more solid trial, and that's probably why FDA approved out of place for only up to three hours of onset of stroke. ECAS 3, there were some, you know, issues with that. There were questions about how the thermolytic arm maybe was less thick, and maybe that's why the FDA has not approved um, out of place for up to four and a half hours of onset of stroke. Um, ischemic stroke, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, when we talk about FDA approval, we talk about how Alteplase has FDA approval and Tenecteplase does not as of now, but a point of clarification is that Alteplase has only FDA approval for, you know, up to three hours of onset mm-hmm. of ischemic stroke, and I thought that was exciting to look at or to highlight. And you did a really good job of highlighting the the biggest studies because Alta Place is our workhorse, but that's like 14 or 15 years where we're not talking like NINS, NINS 1, 1995, ECAS 3, published in 2008. So a lot of time and right now, right up until kind of this point, right? Alta Place is wearing the belt, correct? That's our thrombolytic of, that's our workhorse in acute ischemic stroke kind of based on these trials. True? That is true. Now, before we kind of dive into some of the clinical trial evidence, right? Pharmacists talking to pharmacists, let's get into the drug molecules themselves just a little bit and talk kind of about the differences that exist um, structurally, I guess is how you describe it, between tenecteplase and alteplase and things that we think that that might incur um, that would be beneficial for a thrombolytic. Yeah, of course. I think that's probably our favorite um, discussion to have uh, as a pharmacist to pharmacist. So, um, you know, pharmacokinetically, there are some advantages. And I think that's probably why a lot of people got excited about this medication and all the things that we're going to talk about with trials. But yes, I think if I had to highlight two things that matter the most, one is that, um, you know, tenecteplase was manipulated in the lab with the idea that this is going to be a better option. So they made it so that it's more fibrin specific. And that's great because hypothetically, that means that this is more targeted for that fibrin and the risk of bleeding is going to be less. Specifically, this is 14 times more fibrin specific than alteplase. 
so exciting. And also, it is more resistant to PAI or basically um, positive inactivator inhib in inhibitor. So it doesn't get inactivated that fast. That gives it a longer half-life. That means that you can just, just give it as a bolus instead of a bolus and an infusion. And then to be exact, it's 80 times more resistant to PAI as opposed to alteplase, which I thought was an interesting point, an interesting fact. These details are incredible. The two fun facts that stood out to me is, so the tenecteplase is a genetically modified version of alteplase, and they're so similar. There's only three alterations between tenecteplase to alteplase. Doing those things like you mentioned, the fibrin specificity, the... Um, the increased resistance. The other thing I guess that would be possibly beneficial would be that fibrinogen preservation because it's fibrin specific. And so I think the thinking may be, would that be leading to less coagulopathy because you're having less fibrinogen depletion? Maybe, right? That's one of those. I think a lot of these are possibly theoretical benefits, right? That we've seen, but how does that relate to those kind of outcomes here? Um, but I love, yes, completely agree. Love getting into the molecules. Um, and I've said it before kind of on other episodes, there's always a search to continue improving stroke care and specifically stroke patient outcomes, right? So when did we really kind of start looking into tenecteplase as an alternate thrombolytic and really start to like, oh, okay, like our ears started perking up a little bit? Yeah, that's a good question, Nick. It looks like maybe in um, 2005, that's when this really all started. And people, I think it's um, very reasonable that they wanted to find the right dose before even, you know, trialing it with alteplase or comparing it to alteplase. So initially, there was a study in 2005 that looked at actually four different doses, which is 0.1 mg per kg, 0.25 mg per kg, 0.4, and 0.5 mg per kg. And that's the trial that actually rolled out the 0.5 mg per kg, meaning that that was definitely associated with more uh, symptomatic ICH that got, you know, tossed out. And then the other three basically doses made it to the future trials. But I was, you know, I would say early 2000, 2005 specifically, it looks like when this all kind of shaped up to be a trial. And I think, you know, the, the listeners are probably thinking, right, we, we know the dose, we'll get to that of what we commonly use now, and they're probably like, wow, 0.5 mg per kick seems big, but, right, that's the dose in MI. That's what we were using, tenecteplase. That's, that's what was its big indication as a thrombolytic was in, like, a STEMI as a thrombolytic, so it makes sense that that would be, when they were doing their, those dose-finding studies, that they would kind of look um, into, that, um, into that dose range. So we kind of start looking into that in like the mid 2000s. Now, um, what do, what do the guidelines now kind of recommend or as it relates to thrombolysis in acute ischemic stroke? And I kind of want to highlight the U S and European guidelines kind of showing those differences. So, um, we'll do, uh, kind of age before beauty. So we'll start with the older U.S. guidelines and kind of, and then follow up with the European. So what do, Sally, what are, what are the U.S. guidelines kind of recommend between thrombolytic agents? So um, I think we'll talk about some excitement uh, with the European guidelines, but as far as the American Heart Association goes, you know, the most recent literature or guideline that we have is from 2019. So I think it's, fair to say that we're still behind unless we have a new guideline, um, you know, coming up soon or, or 
fast in the future, in the uh, near future. So as of now, Alta Place remains the agent of choice for acute ischemic stroke within the first three hours of onset of symptoms for, and that is given level A recommendation, meaning, you know, that is the highest level of evidence um, after NIMS. And then um, based on ECAS, we have, you know, up to four and a half hours, but then the level of evidence actually is B, meaning moderate level of evidence as far as quality of evidence goes. Where the American Heart Association stands uh, with Connective Place is that Connective Place could be an alternative, and they talk about dosing of 0.25 mg per kg for people that are actually going for mechanical thrombectomy and if there is no contraindication. So um, it's very specific where you can use Connective Place, and we can talk about, you know, where this is all coming from. What is it that they're making that specific recommendation again? highlighting the fact that this guideline is now four years old. A lot of what we're going to talk about came after this. So it's no surprise that what they have is outdated. I mean, just reviewing it, it feels ancient talking about 2019 when we're going to go through just all the high quality literature that's, that's come through. I mean, let's go the hot off the press are some updated um, kind of European recommendations, but that's not even, this will be their second update since we've last published. So the, the 2021 European guidelines, they suggest TP, they suggest all to place over to neck to place in non thrombectomy eligible candidates and subject to neck to place over all to place in those patients with an LVO, their um, thrombectomy candidates, but quality of evidence low, strength of recommendation weak. That's 2021 recommendation. So hot off the press from the European Stroke Journal in March 2023. So what do what do the guidelines, what do the updates recommend as it relates to tenic to place and all to place? Yeah, I mean, I think I want to make it very simple because, you know, um, it's uh, pretty um you know, comprehensive guideline, but they do definitely talk about Tenecta Place over Alta Place for acute ischemic stroke. Um, you know, they have a very beautiful, I think, distinction of this is the quality of evidence and this is our recommendation. They do talk about how there is a panel and they talk about how many people voted for uh, Tenecta Place over Alta Place. And guess what? What I thought was really exciting was that every time there is a vote, Everyone voted for Connective Place over Alta Place. So my highlight and my take-home message from this is that Connective Place over Alta Place, regardless of if you have an LVO, you don't have an LVO, you are going for a thrombectomy, you're not going for a thrombectomy. And I think that's probably the easiest way to think about it. And I think that's really exciting. That makes it really easy and simple for everyone. Yeah, I mean, the nine out of nine members on all of them. That's, yeah, I completely agree. I thought that was a really key point that all of, of what you would call experts in their field completely agree. Um, and the quality of evidence went from low to moderate and the strength went from weak to strong on all these big things. So um, really important thing. I think all of us in medicine are, we, we almost roll our, our eyes because of course the European guidelines have an expedited recommendation come out using all this evidence and it feels like we may be waiting a while for the AHA, ASA guidelines to update. Hopefully not. Let's see. Now, so before we get into the individual trials, one thing that I was hoping that 
I could pick your brain on, you could help the listeners with is, I think when we're looking in stroke literature and stroke trials, I think it can be easy to feel lost or that the studies can kind of run together or feel very similar, but yet different in your mind. So if you're looking at studies, what are kind of key points or things that you look at to help differentiate them? Are there things that the listeners can kind of be keeping their ears peeled to help differentiate some of these studies that we're going to be talking about? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a really good point. I think when I think about um, the studies are published and you're right, there is a lot of them. What I think about to look at is, are these mild strokes that are looking at, are these moderate or severe strokes? And I think that's going to make a difference. And we'll talk about how some of these studies really highlighted that. Also, the idea is that are these um, studies looking at patients that are going for thrombectomy, they're eligible for thrombectomy or not? And also, what are they looking for, right? Is it uh, functional outcomes? Is it reperfusion, especially for those that are going for thrombectomy? Um, and then side effects, obviously, right? The symptomatic ICH, uh, looking at differences and all of that. And then ultimately, you know, where was it done? You know, if this is just done in a very specific location in the world, can I apply that for our patients here? So some uh, kind of basics to also think about. Uh, what a what a perfect kind of lead in as we go into this. And so Solly and I have been working together to figure out a way to talk about these trials and not have it feel like we're going into 20 studies for 40 minutes. So can I break them up into three different buckets here? So kind of the first studies we're going to talk about is some of that, those earlier initial studies looking at tenecteplase and an acute ischemic stroke and those studies that were included in the AHA and ASA guidelines for acute ischemic stroke. We'll kind of hit some of those trials that dig into some of our dosing. How did we settle on our dose? And then we'll hit some of the newer studies, a lot of those trials that you're going to be used to hearing. Um, for example, the ACT trial. We're going to talk about some of those and how those played a role into those European recommendations. So, Salia, enough about me kind of blabbering about these studies. Um, why don't you kind of take it away, bringing back um, Haley and colleagues who you kind of introduced um, initially when we were talking about first looking at Tenecteplase. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think the first one was Haley and colleagues in 2005, and um, we quickly talked about that, how the 0.5 mg per kg was discarded, and, you know, we kind of identified that maybe we need to look at the 0 0.1, 0 0.25, and 0.4 mg per kg. And the next trial that came after that is, I think, uh, a very big um trial and the history of um, stroke, and um, it really gives us some good guidance. Um, this is commonly known as PNK-S2B. Um, this is a trial that was um, probably one of the rare double-blinded studies in the world of stroke, especially, you know, with yeah. Tenecteplase. This was a multi-center, so there was a lot of advantages, right? This was Looking at people also who came in within three hours of symptoms, we'll talk about how some of the other trials are really looking at patients within four and a half hours of symptoms. But um, this study, I think, had good intentions, but it was um, actually stopped prematurely because of slow um, enrollment. But, but there's still, I think, good um, uh, takeaway points from this study. The first thing was that the 0.4 make per kg connect place dose was shown to have more ICH, um, and that dose was identified to be unsafe. So that was discarded. 
And then the other piece of information that was, I think, disappointing at that point was that when they tried to look at the groups of 0.1 mg per kg versus 0.25 mg per kg of connective plates, they actually couldn't identify any meaningful conclusion, meaning they couldn't say if there was a difference in efficacy, they couldn't say if there was a difference in safety. So what I think that study showed us or taught us was that, hey, the 0.4 mg per kg is bad but we still don't know what the right dose is. And I think that kind of maybe helped people to stop looking at the point where Mick for kick study and kind of keep moving with the other doses or lower doses. And this was a U.S. study, right? These were, these were done, this was a multi-center U.S. study. And so I think when it's done with patients that we think, Correct. like our patients, I think adoption makes a little easier um, than when we're kind of doing international trials here. Correct. And then again, the next study team after this one, the Parsons study in 2012, they actually looked at people that came in within six hours of onset of symptoms of stroke. Again, here they looked at um, 0.9 mg per kg of alcipoint versus 0.1 mg per kg or 0.25 mg per kg of um, connective plates. Again, this is where, you know, like the dosing was maybe a little bit more clear for people. And they found that the higher dose of connective plates, which is the 0.25 mg per kg, was superior to the lower dose and also superior to alpha plates 0.9 mg per kg. And I think um, that showed um, that maybe this is the dose, again, to keep moving forward with, and they did not show any difference in ICH um, between that dose of tenective place and alpha place, which was, again, a, a pretty big um, uh, takeaway from this study. And that's when, you know, you mentioned that these were two studies that, that really got the wheels turning because then, right, IRBs are getting submitted, and then in the coming years, that's when the literature really starts to come out, and we really start having more intensified look at the tenecteplase versus alteplase, right? So what was the next, when we think of kind of the evolution, what was the next study that was published? Yeah, so I think after that, there was, again, a lot of... um, a lot of excitement about this dose, the 0.25 mg per kg. Um, the one study that initially came after that was the test trial. A test trial looked at, um, again, alteplase 0.9 mg per kg versus tenecteplase 0.25 mg per kg. And there was no difference in um, efficacy outcomes and there was no difference in ICH uh, rates. And that was excellent. Again, this is, I think, 2015, right? We're starting to see this is an alternative. Maybe this is the future of stroke. It's easier to give, right? I think that's where this got a lot of attention. And then in 2017, we got the NORTEST trial that, you know, was done in Norway. This was a European study. This is unique in a sense that they only looked at mild stroke. So this is, I think, what this um, study was a little bit unique in a sense that they really wanted to look at patients with mild stroke and what they found was that um, there was no difference in uh, efficacy or safety, but guess what? They used a dose of 0.4 mg per kg of connective plates versus the usual dose of alteplase. So this is, I think, where we got that initial surprise of, okay, are we still thinking about the 0.4 mg per kg or should we go back to, to the 0.25 mg per kg? 
this study again was only in mild stroke. So Nortas 2 came out looking at moderate to severe because again, they wanted to make sure that this could be a general conclusion to all types of stroke. Again, a European study in Norway, a multi-center uh, randomized. When they did the, the study, the same study with the 0.4 mg per gig versus, you know, usual alpha place 0.9 mg per gig, and guess what they found? The trial had to be stopped because of safety concerns. Again, kind of, I think, proving the fact that if you have these really more um, uh, or bigger strokes, these sicker patients, the 0.4 mg per kg is not the, the way to do it. And right now, actually, there's a part B of this trial that is ongoing now looking at 0.25 mg per kg versus standard of care alpha place 0.9 mg per kg. Again, same patient population, moderate to severe stroke and all that. But I think, again, just bringing back the focus that the dosing is 0.25 mg per kg, and maybe the initial um, uh, study kind of was successful or was didn't show that much difference in ICH because they look at milder cases of stroke. And I thought that was a good point. You know, this is important to highlight, and I think this was the learning point from that study. And that's a the the uh, part A kind of Nortes two study that was published within the last year or so and kind of confirmed what um, the extend IA part two trial showed, which was they um, showing that point four mix per kg didn't have any advantage or benefit compared to the point two five mix per kg, and then we see in those more moderate and severe strokes the 0.4 mix per kg compared to alteplase did worse. So it's kind of how we, so have we kind of settled on our 0.25 mix per kg as like, have we kind of landed the plane as, as that is the agreed upon dosing um, or is there, are there still kind of studies looking in the pipeline to, to, you know, evaluate other schemes? To my knowledge, Nick, I think the dosing is all figured out. I think what we're trying to identify is the patient population and probably timing. You know, I think in the world of stroke, what we're learning is that it's not so much about timing. It's about tissue perfusion, meaning, okay, timing was important, but we thought timing was important because we thought that that's when we could actually rescue those um, tissues. But now we're identifying that that is not really just um, directly related to your onset of stroke based on imaging and, you know, new technology and all the things, you can still probably rescue some of those tissues, even if, if it's been more than four and a half hours. So I think identifying the right patient population, and we'll talk about thrombectomy versus no thrombectomy, and the timeline from onset of stroke is really what we're focused on, I think, in the future studies and um, some of these trials that got published in the past a few months. And, you know, looking at, you know, our, the, the AHA, ASA guidelines, right, they, um, the wording is that they, it may be reasonable to choose tenecteplase in those patients who are eligible to undergo thrombectomy, right? And that seems to be all on the basis of the EXTEND IA trial published. The, so tell, tell us a little bit about that Australia-New Zealand study that clearly seemed to, like, actually make guideline changes, whereas a lot of the others were kind of positive studies, but not game changers. Yeah, absolutely. I think this got a lot of attention because, and you know, this was just like you said, 
This is a study that was done in Australia. It was a multi-center study. Um, these are pretty sick patients. The immunized scale was 17, so pretty moderate to severe um, stroke cases. But everyone had to go for thrombectomy. So this was unique to that. What they found, I think, which probably was the reason for the guidelines changing, was that they initially did this non-inferiority kind of, you know, assessment and analysis of uh, reperfusion and functional outcomes. And they actually, they did a superiority analysis and they actually also showed that to be statistically significant. So what they published and what they said was that reperfusion was better with tenecteplase and they had the 0.25 mg per keg than alteplase. And then the functional outcome is also better with connective plates versus alteplase. So that's huge, right? I think if you come out and say, hey, for every patient who went for a thrombectomy and had a large vessel occlusion, this resulted in better functional outcomes, better reperfusion than our center of care, we're going to kind of change our guidelines to reflect that. One thing that I feel like sometimes gets missed is that although people had a you know, better functional outcome status with tenecteplase, the proportion of patients that actually had minimal disability, which is, you know, MRS of zero to one, was the same between the two groups. So I think that's something to pause and look at a little bit. You know, if you are trying to explain that to your patients and tell them that, okay, this is what this drug is going to do, I think it's important to make that this a disclaimer that, yes, there is better functional outcomes uh, for people with tenecteplase, but if you're looking at minimal to zero, you know, disability after treatment, that wasn't any different. And I think that was a big, big take-home message from this study, which sometimes, you know, gets missed. But I wanted to highlight that here. But I think Connected Place um, got really that uh, initial recommendation or that extra recommendation in the guidelines from this trial. They did that um, second dose of 0.4 mg per kg, and they didn't actually find any um, extra benefit or advantages. So they said, well, higher was not better, so we're going to stick with the initial dose of 0.25 mg per kg. That's a really good point, too. Like a lot of these you'll hear, and patients were included in other studies if they were eligible for thrombectomy, right? They had a suspected uh large vessel occlusion, whereas here, right, the the outcome was looking at reperfusion or having a retrieval thrombus. So all of those patients actually went to the neuro IR suite. So I think that's uh, tons of really good points. But I think when you're thinking of methodology and keeping these trials straight, how did we come up with, with the evidence and things? I think that's a really, really good point. I mean, led to that, you know, why all those guidelines kind of recommended, they they kind of wavered but said, hey, if you had to choose, we're kind of leaning to neck to place in those thrombectomy patients. Now, the, the, the AHA ASA guidelines, they were looking at studies. They included them um, up until uh, April of 2019. So, um, and then we also talked about the expedited recommendation on tenecteplase with the European Stroke Organization. So, there are a couple kind of big notable studies that, like, have changed the game. And, you know, we've got on record, Team Tenecteplase here have changed our opinions. So, what are, what, are some of these, what are some of these big studies? What have we found? And why does it feel like there's such a movement in critical care that you almost don't feel? Like, we don't like change in medicine. And it feels like everybody's on board with this change. So what what have we been finding? Yeah, I um you know, I think when Extend I came out 
some institutions changed. I think a lot of institutions also did not change because they said, hey, this is only for LVO uh, cases, and uh, we want to make the change when there's more evidence to include more patients. And that's, I think, a very fair statement. I think that's where, um, you know, I was at, you know, before some of the newer trials, which we're going to talk about. It wasn't really a, a, until the ACT trial that I think a lot of institutions probably felt like, okay, this is it. This this was the trial that we were all waiting for. I think, you know, the beauty of ACT was that, again, a multi-center, um, this was a trial that looked at not only patients with LVO, but different types of stroke or different um, uh, uh, ideologies of ischemic stroke. And what they found was that there was no difference between tenexaplase. Again, the dosing was all figured out, right? 0.25 mg per kg out of place. And they, um, you know, talk about the fact that because of ease of administration, this may be a reasonable alternative. And I think that was a very, uh, the, the conclusion seemed to be very fair. Um, and after that, if this was not enough, there was a second trial that came out recently, maybe five, six months ago, TRACE-2 trial. Mm-hmm. This was done in China. Now, like, the disclaimer is that this was a very unique trial. This, one, this was done in Chinese patients. This was patients you know, within four and a half hours of symptoms of stroke. What is unique about this one is, though, that these patients were ineligible for thrombectomy or they refused to go. So if you thought that, okay, I can't do this for because of Extend IA, because, hey, my patients, the majority of patients that we admit, they do not have LDL, and ACT was not enough for you to kind of change your practice, I think TRACE 2 is probably convincing a lot of people. Again, this was done in China, so a different patient population, but they showed again that tenexaplase was non-inferior to alteplase, and these patients did not go for thrombectomy. So um, here's another uh, new trial confirming what other trials showed, that tenexaplase is as safe and as effective. Well, and I think too, like you mentioned, it's a it's a Chinese study, but I think a lot of times when we're looking at some of the studies from maybe China or Japan, a lot of times their doses may be different when we're looking at those and it makes it hard to, um, you know, translate what that means to our patients. But like the, the trace two trials using, you know, our standard kind of agreed upon doses. So um, I think that makes it even easier. Um, two, two points I want to, I want to bring from the act, the act and the trace two trial. So with the trace two trial, um, what an incredible achievement in less than a year, they enrolled over 1,400 patients. And then, right, okay, so that's like doing the laundry, right? But then they published those results less than a year after being recruited. So they actually folded their laundry when they were done too. That was, I mean, that's amazing. I've put off a single center study for more than two years, and they're doing like 50-some center. Yeah. <laughs> so that's amazing. <laughs> Great um, point, yeah. And then... That there's a really, really cool um, article that was published in Stroke in July of 2022, and it was from the authors of the ACT trial, and the authors, it's basically um, an article that goes into the ethical justification and the methodologic necessity for the deferral of consent, and kind of talking a little bit about the ethics and consent in research and strokes, and I think it's if it's something you've never seen or th- um, really thought of before, it was really fascinating, right? Because I think 
everyone's really sensitive to what can happen after a stroke. So you're always going to be more hesitant probably in things, right? So they talk about, you know, is there uncertainty? Is the standard of care included? Are they, you know, are they incapable of making their decision? Probably all those kinds of things. So just an interesting thing I wanted to kind of point out that the the authors went um, above and beyond to kind of publish why they thought it was um, necessary. Their kind of methods there. Um, so I thought that was really, um, cool and, and notable there. Okay. So, and those, a lot of right, 2022, 2023, that's when a lot of these studies have come out. So clearly a lot of work from the extend IA to now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So is there any any studies that we kind of need to... That, that the neurocritical care world have their radar on in the future um, that might either further confirm what we're thinking, maybe get FDA approval, um, looking at different patients. What kind of studies are, are on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there is definitely a lot of people and institutions and centers that are working on um, – the FDA approval part of this. And I think a lot of the ongoing studies are probably trying to help facilitate that. As far as um, what is probably needed in the future, I think, you know, we are, it's very timely because we are definitely one of those centers that in the middle of this transition, what I definitely want to do is I want to look at our post-intervention versus our pre-intervention and see what happened, you know, Yes, clinically, this is all sound and this is all great, but operationally, how is that helping? This whole, you know, we talk about door-to-needle versus door-to-thrombolysis. Is that changing outcomes? Is that giving us a better, you know, functional status for our patients? Is that helping with transfer? Is it helping with sooner thrombectomy? Um, Which, you know, now we know is a huge thing in the world of strokes. I think those are some of the things that I have in mind. But as far as, you know, in the future and what's going on is that um, this whole, um, how late can you push this, right? Um, 12 hours, 24 hours, are we ever going to see longer than that? Um, And I honestly wonder if this is, if we can prove that tenecteplase is safer than alteplase, do we have to go back and look at our um, contraindications? Because, you know, we're technically excluding a lot of patients that, could possibly benefit from this. So I wonder if that's something that has to be done. You know, we talked about how ECAS 3, there's the list of exclusion was huge. And a lot of people say, oh, these are, you know, relative contraindications. These are, you know, absolute contraindications. Do we have to relook at those when we think about tenecteplase and how we're going to treat our patients in the future, especially when this becomes a standard of care everywhere? This is why you're the best. What? Yeah, there. If these are positive trials, they're absolutely 
going to be trying to figure out how they can get more patients to receive thrombolysis and things. That's a, I hadn't even thought of that, but that's a, uh, a really, really good point. Um, okay. Let's, let's shift gears. We focused a lot on like the clinical evidence, the trials, guidelines, So let's shift just a little bit and let's kind of talk about more of some of like the practical sides of things, uh, maybe managing an adverse effect and kind of kind of talk about, okay, we got people to buy in, maybe they're team connected place. Let's talk about things, considerations and things to think about. Now, you mentioned a lot of the like pharmaco um, dynamic parameters and how they have longer half life and things and when treating and breaking up that ischemic stroke, that's perfect. That's awesome. That's what we want to do. But obviously, one of the biggest adverse effects we're trying to prevent is a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. So when if when patients experience those kinds of thrombolytic-induced intracranial hemorrhage, if we're thinking of alteplase versus tenecteplase, is there a change in management? Do we know if one agent has a higher rate of this adverse effect than another thinking about these agents? So as of now, what we know is that are comparable. But one of the questions that I think will come up for us, or I'm sure a lot of institutions probably getting is that, oh, if Tenexaplase is a longer half-life, do you have to worry about the risk of bleed for a longer duration? My answer as of now is no, because remember that Altaplase, you actually compensate for that shorter half-life with a continuous infusion, right? So as of now, I think that they're comparable. I think that if anything, because this is more fibrin specific, you probably have lower rates of symptomatic ICH. Um, so I don't think anything would be different. One thing that I am obviously, you know, thinking about is that um, with Alteplase, if someone, let's say, complained of um a really bad headache during the infusion, you could pause and you could, you know, go for a HCT immediately and not complete the treatment, which technically that's a little bit tricky, right? The drug is already given an IV bolus over two to five seconds. So if the bleed happens, the drug is already in. Again, most of the time, this is a good thing. This is what we want. But if, you know, ICH happens, then it's unfortunate. But luckily, you know, we do have a protocol. We can use what we knew from Alteplase. You know, cryo will be our agent of choice. We can, you know, if we're worried about the expansion, we can send for fibrinogen and look at that and maybe repeat our cryo and all that. So I think we have options. Um, But as of now, I don't think that we need to do anything different. You know, if this happened, um, you know, if ICH um uh, happen for someone after receiving the tenecteplase. But again, I think one thing that is going to be difficult is that you just don't have time to act on it when the drug is being given. You definitely will kind of face that after the, the agent is already in. Um, the other piece that, you know, the, the other, uh, you know, uh, complication is that what if um, you're not sure if the drug was already fully in. We've talked about, and I've learned from other institutions that have had, you know, infiltrations and stuff. And what do you do? Do you give more? I wouldn't. I don't know, like, how much of the drug was given, how much, you know, extravasated and all that. So those are some of the things to think about. Um, But I don't have a very good answer as of now. And no, I mean, we're going to talk about it, right? The max dose are giving five mLs. If that's a bad exactly. line, how easy is that to get lost? You don't know. 
you're you're bringing up some really good points. I'm I'm almost laughing in my head because when I work nights, inevitably this is when that would come up. Would be one thirty in the morning, uh, yeah. overnight. Um, okay, on a Friday night. Yeah, <laughs> Friday or Sunday, guaranteed. You're absolutely right. <laughs> now let's. Uh, you kind of brought up that like um, the inability to stop the infusion, right? We've kind of had a connect to place party a little bit talking about all the benefits and things, but let's, are there any reasons that if we're going to play, you know, if we're going to cover both sides of it, are there, are there things to think about of like, what would, what would the argument be for not adding or kind of hesitating on making that switch to connect to place on your hospital formulary? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question. And I think, you know, I think clinically, um, I, as of now, given all the studies that we have, given all the patients that are looked at, clinically, I think this is, this is a better option. I think, you know, we talked about it. We're team connect to place. I'm team connect to place. This is the way to do it. Again, clinically speaking, if there are enough resources, if you have um, the capacity to educate people, to utilize them in maybe different Texas machines and different areas for different indications. But if, you know, this is just not feasible, the education or the resources, it may be um, easier and safer to just keep the practices um, until there is enough support to change. Now, the only, the only, I'm going to play the other side here. I'll bring up two points. Um, the, the one, the one point um, is that at this point, I think until they get uh, FDA approval, there's no like connect to pay place like buyback program like they have with Alta Place. Um, so I know that's Correct. one thing. I I don't. I, I would be curious how much people truly are using that on a monthly, yearly basis to say why they would or would not make a switch. Um, the other the other thing that that came to mind because this was something when we're thinking of the opposite of thrombolytics, but we're thinking of the, you know, like PCC reversal things and looking at if one agent's FDA approved and one isn't, should that make a difference? Well, I know I said I was going to be arguing for Alta Place, but it's actually an argument for Tenecta Place. So the, if someone at your institution is saying, hey, I think we need Alta Place, it's the FDA approved agent, there's a trial, the most trial, that's looking at Eptifibotide um, or argatroban in acute ischemic stroke, and the they they uh, the researchers um, applied and got approval that the standard of care thrombolysis is either 0.25 mg per kg to place or 0.9 mg per kg of alteplase. So tuck that in your back pocket in case anybody tries to come at you with the FDA approval statement because i mean you mentioned those future studies that's they got their eyes set on it that's for sure um now and remember that also yep. plays only if fda approved for the first three hours yep. when you go beyond that it's not fda approved so i feel like that argument cannot really be used anymore all right now let's get back on the positive side now what's the argument to make the switch um for we've we've talked about like the clinical rates and like the, you know, improvement in outcomes and things, but some more of like the practical side of things for us at the bedside. What, what's the things of like, yep, that's why we need to make the, the switch for our thrombolytic agent. I mean, there's so much, Nick, I can't even, it, you know, ease of administration, um, a bolus dose instead of finding a pump, 
the 10%, did you give it or not? The rest of it, the 90%, that has to be an infusion. Delaying transfers because of this um, lower potentially risk of ICH. Um, I think this is convincing enough given how easy it is to give. Definitely, I agree that we have to do education. We have to make sure that dosing is reinforced because it's different from MI dosing. But given all the things that we're going to gain uh, compared to other, you know, minor issues, I think it's so worth it. And I think everyone, this has been one of probably the rare interventions that in a lot of places, almost everyone is, you know, supportive of. And um, it, it's been easy to do because of that. That's because anyone that's ever had to do program a pump and like complete all to place from beginning to end typically never wants to do it again. Like, you know, you get the bolus and it's, oh, the pump's beeping because there's bubbles in it, but you can't just replace it. So you got to fly a whole thing. It is like, and I think the real game changer is like, yes, for we're giving it inpatient too, but those mobile stroke units and what giving it like in those areas, being able to IV push versus trying to have a pump and things is going to be really, really great. So absolutely. if you, cause you, you have made the switch or your, your institution or health system has, or is planning on doing this, correct? Yeah. In the transition phase. So what either based on kind of what's been published out there or based on your experience of going through this, what kind of advice would you make for, for listeners or people who are, um, wanting to kind of take that charge and really look at their um, thrombolysis protocol in acute ischemic stroke and try to optimize what they can? Yeah, I think the first step is to make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, Communication is key. I think this is even before thinking about the medication and making sure, you know, your pharmacy department, your stroke department, your neurocritical care group, everyone's on the same page basically figuring out who are the leaders in each group and getting everyone's um, blessings and making sure that everyone's supportive of that. The second thing, you know, that I thought has been really important is that, again, we're in a big institution where we're going to keep place and place. We felt that, you know, keeping place in their initial box that says for acute MI only and it has the MI dosing was not going to work out for us. So remove the the vials from the boxes. We have them in a little Ziploc, clear Ziploc bag, just like any other drug with distilled water that it has to get mixed in. So you have a drug that could be used for different indications, like all the other drugs without a specific label to say, this is a dose for that. We don't do that for any other medications, right? You don't say, oh, you know, heparin this dose for you know this indication and heparin that dose for the other indication so we made it very generic as if this is a drug you need to know the indication and you need to do the right dose for that indication just like any other drugs we never label things with specific doses so removing that has been really helpful you know in some of our areas like our ed and our ccu connectiveness will be there for some mi cases what we've done is that every time um, you know, people are taking connective place from the PIXIS. So they're going to be a specific um, kind of alert saying what indication are you using it for? And when you have to type in, it tells you what the right dose is. And whenever you take out alteplase, it says, remember that alteplase is not going to be used for acute ischemic stroke in adult patients. So again, reminders for every single use that, hey, and again, you can bypass that, right? But this is easier to remind people as opposed to 
having that fear that what if they miss it or they don't think about it. The other thing we've done, which, you know, I think is necessary is creating educational sessions. We've uh, trained all of our staff pharmacists, we've trained all of our pharmacy residents. Um, you know, we've talked about operational um, pearls, but we've also talked about some of the trials that we talked about because we think that it matters. People need to know why we're doing this. This is not just a change because, you know, this is a change because we think it's better for our patients. We think it's easier. If we think it's going to be um, saving some money, hopefully, not just by direct costs, but, you know, saving nurses time, saving transfers and all the things that we talked about. Um, so I think there's a lot of pieces. I think, um, you know, obviously your providers should be educated and making sure that's happening at the same time. Your nurses are getting educated and that's happening at the same time. So every department should really identify a leader and they should work on operational and educational kind of pathways to make sure that everyone's on the same page when you have a go live date. Really great tips. The idea of um, kind of taking it out and putting it in your own kind of bag or kit is a really good idea because the MI dosing chart is right in the box. So even if you, even if you don't want to repackage it, you should at least put a sticker or cover that because that I can't think of a bigger med safety risk than the dose you need is half the dose that's staring you in the face. Um, the other, the other pearl was replacing the 10 CC syringe with a five CC syringe knowing that that maximum dose you would give is 25 milligrams in ischemic stroke 5 mLs versus the 10. Now, the the one thing I wanted to ask, the listeners may realize if a lot of times when, when you're talking about thrombolytics, you say TPA or TNK. And I think all of the listeners would probably notice that you or I – I worked hard. I'm sure I screwed it up at least once, but we did not. We said synecdoche and altoplace. So w- walk us through why we did that. Well, what's why do you think that's important, and why we probably should stop being so comfortable with abbreviations of a drug that we're not necessarily even using anymore? <laughs> this has been my biggest struggle in my, I think, work environment. Um, I, um, I honestly educated myself to, to say. Alteplase after the initial tenecteplase started to come out because I was predicting this to happen. Medication errors, just like what we talked about, right? Um, It's almost saying, give me a beta blocker. You know, you can't do that. Every beta blocker is used for a specific indication, um, but a specific dose, uh, and it's just not acceptable. So to do that and to say, you know, TPA, which is a class, and label a drug with a class is... I mean, we don't do that in medicine. That's against everything we've learned about medication safety. Um, so I think it's really time. I really want to encourage everyone. It's time to say alteplase. And it's time to say tenecteplase. You know, TNK, again, it could be confused with other uh, abbreviations. It could be um, um, confused with T- TPA if you're writing it down and, you know, it's not easy to read your handwriting. Um, I just think that again, you can't use a drug class to call or name a drug a specific medication. So um, I'm really glad that we said alteplase and tenecteplase every single time. And I really hope that this becomes, you know, our usual practice everywhere in the country. It's not like we're even saving syllables. 
TPA is still three <laughs> syllables. Altaplace and TPA yeah. are the same syllables. Tenectoplace is four. TNK is three. So it's not like we're even like saving time. So um, I agree. We will we will fight the good fight. We'll fight the good fight here. No more of those three letter abbreviations <laughs> for our thrombolytic agents here. So, I mean, so you went through an incredible amount of info, giving us so many tips, things to think about considerations. So when you think about the umbrella of kind of all we talked about of tenecteplase in acute ischemic stroke, what is like your high level ultimate takeaways, like the biggest things you think you keep in mind or you think about when, when thinking about tenecteplase for this indication? So I think that the dosing is all cleared up, you know, at least in my book, 0.25 mg per kg. I think if we're really still looking at that, I don't really think we need more evidence for that. I think as far as when to give it, we probably have enough evidence to say within four and a half hours from onset of symptoms, this could change based on future studies. But as of now, that's what we know that is safe and is effective. And then it really could be used for with this dosing that we have in mind. I think it's, it's probably fair to say this could be used for mild, moderate, severe strokes. This could be used for people that are eligible for thrombectomy, people who are not eligible for thrombectomy, and that, again, it's easier to give. It, you have to have, obviously, all the safety, um, um, kind of, you know, um, necessary safety interventions in place to make sure that you are doing the right thing. Um, but other than that, I, I'm hoping that this is becoming, a, you know, a universal intervention, a universal change. Um, because I think that it, it will change our patients' outcomes, and I think that it will save everyone some time, and it will help with, you know, achieving all those, all the CMS measures for daughter needle, daughter thermolysis, and all that. So I'm really excited about this. I think this is this is a very good change in medicine. And this is, I, I think... Um, all of us who used to have to program and mess with Altaplace, I think Altaplace is in the front runner for back in my day drug, the drug that we talked to everyone about and how terrible it was. So I'm 100% down with that. I hope that they don't have to. I also uh, like talking about things like that. I'm talking about how much harder we had it. So this is just going to be, yeah. I think this is the front runner, but uh, what a great considerations. The other thing to, that I love that you emphasized was getting the stakeholders involved. This is not a pharmacy thing. It's not a neuro thing. It is, it is multidisciplinary medicine at its finest. Um, and you should be having that approach with everything, but especially if you're thinking about changing agents. Salia, thank you so 100%. much again. Appreciate your time and expertise. Reminder, everyone reach out. Tell her thank you so much uh, for all of the tips and tricks at Salia underscore Farouk. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks again to Salia. Uh, remember, reach out to her uh, at Salia underscore Faroque, um on Twitter and uh, me on Twitter and Instagram at Pharmacy to Dose, T.O. to Dose, or via email, Pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com. Remember, big three from the beginning. Award show, get excited. The literature review series, Going to hopefully have input and articles from you all, friends of the pod and listeners of the pod. And then number three, 
um, is we're gonna. There are four partners that we're gonna be announcing soon, but lots of things um, in the works and coming in the background. And I'm uh, really excited to see um, to see it all unfold and let you all kind of uh, experience it with us. Um, so please reach out, reach out. Um, the reference list with the articles we discussed and more. It's gonna be featured in the episode description as well as the website pharmacytodose.com. Until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.